0: I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Senior Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, Thank you so much, Rob. Um, I too would like to welcome everyone to today's program. And today's program is a partnership with the Lymphoma Foundation of America, and um, we're delighted to be partnering with them on this important program on diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, DLBCL, treatment updates. And today's program is supported by Gilead and an educational grant from Morphosis US Inc. I really want to thank them for their support of this program. Now, we have over 204 participants on the program today. And you come from all over the United States, from both urban, rural, suburban, and frontier communities. And we also have international participants from Brazil, Canada, Lithuania, and the United Kingdom. So it's a global call as well, and it's a credit to each of you that you've chosen to spend the next hour with us. And now it is my great pleasure to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Sarah Rutherford. Dr. Rutherford is John P. Leonard, M.D. Gortzman, Family Research Scholar in Lymphoma, Assistant Professor of Medicine, while Cornell Medical College, Cornell University. And Dr. Rutherford will be addressing an overview of diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, including staging, and grading in the context of COVID, Omicron, and seasonal flu, and new and emerging treatment approaches. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Rutherford.
1: Thank you so much, Dr. Messner, for the introduction, and I'm really excited to talk to you all today about this and to answer questions later. There have been so much uh, advances in this disease and the few cell to lymphoma over the past Five years or so, that it's a really exciting time to be a doctor and a researcher taking care of patients with this disease. Diffuse uh, large B cell lymphoma is the most common type of lymphoma, and it's a considered a fast growing disease, but it's also highly curable. It can cause symptoms including fatigue, fevers, chills, night sweats, decreased appetite, weight loss, or pain. Typically, these symptoms actually regress or improve quickly once the treatment is started. Diagnosis is usually made with a lymph node biopsy or tissue biopsy of a of another involved site of disease. We often do an imaging test of the body, ideally one called a PET/CT scan, or sometimes a CT scan, um, which will confirm exactly where the disease is at the baseline, so that the doctors can know exactly exactly the outcome of treatment. So we will then repeat the scan, usually after some number of treatments and uh, ensure the treatment is working well before we continue on to complete it. The majority of patients have what is called advanced stage disease, which we call stage three to four, Um, but it remains curable even in later stages because this disease responds well to chemotherapy. So we don't focus on stage quite as much as we do from a prognostic standpoint in this disease compared to some other types of cancer. I mean, I just briefly wanted to mention grading is really the way that the uh, cancer cells look under the microscope. And it's not really about where it is in the body, but how fast the cells are growing. And as I mentioned, this disease does tend to grow relatively quickly. Um, But the good news about that is that chemotherapy tends to work better in diseases that grow quickly because it interferes with the cell growth. Uh, Because this is a curable disease, it has been been important to continue the planned therapy or initiate therapy when a new diagnosis has occurred during the COVID-19 pandemic. This is in contrast to some other types of lymphoma in which treatment could sometimes be delayed during the time period, particularly in the early phases of the pandemic. We do encourage our patients to receive the vaccine, the latest vaccines against COVID-19 and the influenza vaccine as well prior to starting treatment if possible. Um, Given the increased risk of, of infection that can occur when a patient is immunosuppressed or, um, due to the treatment. The standard treatment for diffuse large B-cell lymphoma is called R-CHOP, and this is a combination of immunotherapy called rituximab, which directly targets a protein on the surface of the lymphoma cells called CD20, and um, it is given in combination with three chemotherapy drugs called cyclophosphamide, doxorubicin, and vincristine, and a steroid called prednisone. This is a very tried-and-true regimen that has been used for decades, really, and is typically given every three weeks for a total of six treatments. Some patients may be recommended a similar regimen called dose-adjusted epoch r That's given um, sometimes in the hospital or sometimes in the outpatient infusion center, but it's called infusional chemotherapy, and it's given continuously for five days, um, again, every three weeks for six treatments. There are some patients who may be recommended a lower dose version of the the chemotherapy that we call our mini-CHOP, and that sometimes can be in patients who have other medical problems or older age in which we're concerned that um, we wanna balance the side effects of treatment with the efficacy or the effectiveness of the treatment. In the past few years, as I've mentioned already, there have been some really exciting developments in research for diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, and I think Dr. Diefenbach will particularly talk about this in the context of clinical trials, which have led to the approval of multiple new types of therapies by the US FDA and other regulatory agencies um, whose disease has recurred after initial therapy. Um, in addition, there's actually another uh, a new treatment which has shown promise in a newly diagnosed patient population as well. Although it's not currently FDA approved, this regimen may become approved in the coming months or years in the U.S. Um, it incorporates a new drug called polatuzumab vedotin, and I'm going to spell that P-O-L-A-T-U-Z-U-M-A-B, vedotin. a second word V-E-D-O-T-I-N. This is a new type of mechanism of drug that's called monoclonal antibody drug conjugate, and it binds specifically to the lymphoma cells and then ejects a toxin into the cells that helps directly kill them. And there was a study that was discussed and presented over a year ago at one of our national meetings through the American Society of Hematology showing promising efficacy of this new drug in combination with the rituximab and the CHP, the majority of the regimen of RCHOP. So we look forward to that being a possible option for patients in a newly diagnosed situation in the future. That drug is already FDA approved for the treatment of diffuse large B cell lymphoma um, in the case of it not responding adequately to the first-line therapy. And in that case, it's given with a different chemotherapy called bendamustine. Again, Dr. Diefenbach will likely mention this during her talk. Um, I wanted to just mention a couple other um, new therapy approaches also that, that she will likely discuss in further detail. Um, one of them is called CAR T-cell therapy. That CAR stands for chimeric, C-H-I-M-E-R-I-C, antigen receptor T-cells. This is a new immunotherapy approach that's aimed at helping the immune system better fight the lymphoma. And it is now approved um, for um, multiple different situations in in diffuse large B-cell lymphoma in patients who have not responded adequately to the first-line therapy. Um, And there are many other agents, some of which are FDA-approved, and others are in clinical trials and look very promising. Um, So, again, this has been such an exciting time to be a doctor taking care of patients with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma and other types of lymphomas um, because we have gained so much uh, in terms of new therapies that we can really start picking the exact right therapy for each individual patient and really tailoring it to that person's individual needs. Um, and I look forward to hearing Dr. Diefenbach and Dr. Diaz um, as they um, uh, discuss their portions, and then we will all reconvene at the end for a question and answer session. Thank you so much for your attention.
0: Oh, Thank you so much, Dr. Rutherford. That was outstanding. It's a stellar presentation and really set the stage for today's program. Lots of great information. And I'm sure there'll be great questions for you during the Q&A as well. Thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Catherine Diefenbach. And Dr. Diefenbach is Associate Professor of Medicine, Translational Director of, Hemat- of Hematology, Director of Clinical Lymphoma, Promotic Cancer Center, an NCI-designated Comprehensive Cancer Center, NYU Langone Health. Dr. Diefenbach will be addressing the role of clinical trials, how research contributes to treatment options, and treatment options for resistant disease. It's really my great pleasure to to present Dr. Diefenbach, who will be discussing the role of clinical trials, how research contributes to treatment options, and treatment options for resistant disease. Dr.
2: Diefenbach. Thank you um, so much for inviting me to talk to everyone today, um, and I'm so happy to be here to talk to all of you about clinical trials. So the drug that Dr. Rutherford talked about, polituzumab, um, which I think she had you spell, is a new drug. Um, it is what is called an antibody drug conjugate, but you can better understand it as chemo on a stick. Um, and it basically um, is... Uh, almost like a Trojan horse, so it goes into the cell, and it targets a protein that's on the surface of the tumor cells, but not on the surface of your normal cells, and it uses that, that uh, protein to get its way into the cell, where it then basically uses the chemo that it holds to blow up the cell. So this is a new kind of drug, and these drugs were initially developed five or six years ago. And they're a big departure on old-fashioned chemotherapy, which basically just works by targeting the most rapidly dividing cells. So if you think about the way old-fashioned chemotherapy works, drugs you may have gotten like cyclophosphamide or adriamycin or methotrexate, they all work by targeting uh, cell, cell growth. And cells that grow rapidly are killed indiscriminately. So... Your cancer cells that grow fast are killed, but your hair cells are also killed, and your blood cells are also killed. A lot of these new drugs are much smarter, and they look at pathways that the cancer cells rely on to survive or proteins that the cancer cells express on their surface and use those as a way to target the cancer cells differentially. That means target the cancer cells but spare the normal cells. So how does a drug that is so exciting like polituzumab which has its primary toxicity as as some neuropathy, but when combined with standard chemo, had no additional toxicity, yet in the clinical trial that Dr. Rutherford talked about, had an increase in progression-free survival that was about 7%. So quite a significant improvement in progression-free survival. That's having your disease not come back um, compared to standard of care. So the answer is you can't just develop a promising drug and and bring it into the marketplace and say, here it is, right? Because you need to prove that your drug is both safe, so that it's not going to make people sicker, and then you need to prove that it's better or as good but safer than existing therapies. So how do we go about proving that? The only way to do that is in a clinical trial. And there are three kinds of clinical trials, or three flavors. The first flavor is called Phase one, and those are really only performed in specialized centers like the Promoter Cancer Center where I work or the centers where Dr. Rutherford and Dr. Diaz work. These are the first in human or early phase studies where you're looking to see if the drug works as well in patients as, as it did in animals and in the clinic and whether it's safe. These are usually not randomized. These are you either get the drug by itself or you get the drug in combination with other already approved therapies, and you look both at how well the drug works and how safe it is. If it passes this hurdle, it then goes into a true phase two, which can be you're really looking at efficacy, but you could be looking at efficacy in, by itself or in a randomized smaller way, a smaller study, or you're looking maybe at a combination versus one drug by itself. Most drugs do not get approved in a phase two study, but if you have a rare lymphoma, like a T-cell lymphoma, sometimes because there are not a lot of patients with this rare condition, you don't need a very large phase three study. You can do a randomized phase two study and get approval. So, Brentuximab which is an, the first antibody drug conjugate to be approved, was approved in Hodgkin lymphoma in a single-arm study. So that usually doesn't happen anymore. Um, but phase two studies, you already know the drug is safe and you already know it's active, but you want to really get a better understanding of both its activity and its safety. And then phase three studies are randomized studies where you, you're randomized either against the standard of care um, or a standard of care plus your new agent, or your new agent by itself plus a standard of care, but these tend to be randomized and often blinded studies so the study that Dr. Rutherford was talking about, um, the uh, study that the Polaric study where polituzumab was looked at um, in combination with uh, CHOP chemotherapy, that was a randomized study. So patients either got standard RCHOP or they got RCHOP with this new drug. Now most of the exciting new drugs are looked at in patients with relapse disease. So you may ask, why is that? Why don't the exciting drugs go to patients with newly diagnosed disease? And the answer is, we're quite good at curing lymphoma in many people with minimal toxicity. So we don't want to bring it to first-line therapy unless we know it's both very safe and very active. The caveat to this is patients with um, what you might consider to be high-risk disease, so some molecular features that were high-risk or or um, histologies that were high-risk, like T-cell lymphomas, there might be more of an appetite to look in the first-line therapy. But some of the exciting drugs that have been developed recently, um, which have been looked at in the relapse setting and now are moving forward um, to earlier lines of therapy, there's a class of drugs called bispecific antibodies. And there are multiple that are in development right now. How do these work? So An antibody is basically um, a way to glom onto a protein. And so uh, an antibody can have one arm, um, and that arm basically binds a protein that's on the surface of a tumor cell. And most antibodies have one arm. A bispecific antibody has two arms, and one arm binds to a marker on the tumor cell, usually a CD20, and the other arm binds to a T cell. T-cells are your immune cells that help recognize foreign cells and help to get the body to attack them. So you can imagine that when you have a tumor cell held in close proximity to a T-cell, this might excite your immune system. And in fact, what this bispecific antibody is doing is basically feeding the tumor cell to the T-cell and saying, T-cell, look, there's a bad cell here. Eat it and tell your friends to eat it too. And there has been really... Um, very impressive activity across a panel of bispecific antibodies, both alone and in combination with other novel agents like antibody drug conjugates, so much so that now bispecific antibodies are moving um, into earlier lines of treatment and, prob- and eventually are going to be in clinical trials in the frontline setting. So that's one very exciting um, new agent that's not approved yet that um, actually, in follicular lymphoma, just got FDA approval, um, and that's the bispecific antibody mosinatuzumab, um, and that is now approved in follicular lymphoma because of all the clinical trials uh, that patients with relapsed follicular lymphoma went into. Other um, exciting agents, um, I think Dr. Rutherford mentioned CAR T-cells. So CAR T-cells are agents, um, w- it's basically a way to um, take your cells out of your body teach them to recognize your tumor cells, manipulating your immune system, and then you put them back in the body and they hopefully kill your cancer cells. And that has been, um, that was approved for very relapsed patients, but more recently because of clinical trials, now approved for large cell lymphoma patients um, who relapse after chemotherapy uh, within the first year. So you can see that we're making so much progress in lymphoma because of clinical trials. And on the other side, the clinical trials have offered us a way to give our patients much more exciting, uh, scientifically meaningful therapies than standard chemotherapy before they are um, go through the long, sometimes three-to-five-year approval process. Other exciting drugs that are on the horizon are drugs that target proteins or pathways um, that cancer cells rely on. So there is a drug that targets something called EZH2, called tezimesostat. Um, there is um, there are drugs that there are new drugs uh, that target um, CD19 in combination with lenalidomide, called tafasitamab and lenalidomide, and this is an excellent therapy for patients with relapsed uh, aggressive lymphomas who are not candidates for CAR T cell or transplant. Um, and there are uh, multiple. Um, um, uh, uh, drugs that target the uh, Bruton's tyrosine kinase pathway and other pathways that cancer cells rely on. So, basically, I'll conclude by just saying that clinical trials are what drives the progress of bringing new therapies to the lymphoma field forward. Um, I'm very selective about the clinical trials I open in my center. They have to have a good scientific rationale and also a drug that I would be happy to give my patients that I think is safe and has at least a good chance of being highly effective, and I look at clinical trials as being a way to offer patients more than just what is commercially available. I think that that's um, similar across um, most academic medical centers, including the ones that Dr. Rutherford and Dr. Diaz Uh, are are working at, and I would say this is just such an exciting time in lymphoma. I just came back from our annual lymphoma meeting, and the number of new drugs that are being developed and the number of new uh, pathways and targets is just uh, fantastic, and the idea of having so many more options to treat patients with and keep patients healthy for longer is absolutely fantastic. Thank you. Oh,
0: thank you so much, Dr. Diefenbeck. That was really an outstanding presentation, really stellar, and a lot of wonderful information, and also um, lots of enthusiasm about all the new pro- new drugs being developed for people, new drugs that are available right now, and of course the availability of clinical trials and and the and the importance of really participating in those trials. Um, it really helps to move the treatments forward. Um, to get better and better. So, thank you so much. I know there'll be questions for you during the Q and A as well. And our next speaker is Dr. Adelfo Enrique Diaz. Dr. Diaz is um, associate professor, Department of Medicine, Division of Hematology Oncology, May's Cancer Center, UT Health San Antonio, MD Anderson Cancer Center. And Dr. Diaz will be addressing tips to manage treatment side effects, symptoms, discomfort, and pain. Guidelines to prepare for telehealth, telemedicine appointments, including prepared list of questions, quality of life concerns, and discussion of open notes. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague Dr. Diaz.
3: Thank you, Caroline, and thank you all for the uh, opportunity. I uh, want to thank you as well the Blingforma Foundation of America for this beautiful um, effort. Um, and so uh, I have a lot to cover, so I'll go ahead and get started. So uh, I'll, I'll start with the uh, management uh, and treatment side effects, symptoms, uh, discomfort, and pain. Uh, and I'm just going to start by saying that it really depends on the type of uh, treatment that the patient is receiving. And uh, we've heard uh, before from uh, Dr. Woodford and, and Dr. Liefenbach that there are different types of therapy. Patients can get a uh, chemo or chemo immunotherapy, uh, targeted therapy, now antibody drug conjugates or uh, bispecifics uh, at this stage. So I am going to kind of like uh, divide the type of side effects into what we know as uh, hematologic side effects and non-hematologic side effects. As far as the uh, non-hematologic side effects, um, I'm going to start by speaking about uh, gastrointestinal symptoms, and, and that is, you know, uh, basically uh, nausea and or vomiting, um, diarrhea and or constipation that in general uh, can be improved by uh, eating several small meals instead of three large meals a day, and trying to avoid greasy or spicy foods and keeping uh, your head elevated for an hour after eating. Um, That's kind of like uh, in general. But if if it gets to the point that simple measures do not improve such symptoms, there are always anti-emetics, which are medications that we commonly use with the medication, with Uh, uh, when the chemotherapy is uh, infused, uh, as well as medications that are uh, prescribed uh, to the patient so they can keep those on their pockets and use them uh, as needed. Um, So those can be used uh, for nausea and vomiting, uh, and there are also medications uh, prescribed uh, to promote or decrease the uh, motility of uh, the GI system depending on the symptoms, you know, uh, whether there's diarrhea or or constipation. Um, There's also what we call uh, mucositis, which is nothing more, nothing else than mouth sores. So, you know, uh, chemo drugs sometimes harm the healthy cells in the uh, lining of the mouth, uh, and that results in small, open, painful sores inside inside your mouth um, or on your lips. And there's no really uh, a good way to prevent this issue. But uh, soaking on ice ice chips uh, during the treatment may may reduce the risk. Um, If you end up developing a a sore, uh, you can rinse your mouth before and after meals. And at bedtime, uh, with a uh, solution, which is a combination of one teaspoon of baking soda and one teaspoon of uh, salt uh, to one quart of water and that's a recommendation by the uh, American Cancer Society. Uh, If uh, besides those measures you're still having pain and especially if it makes it difficult to eat and or drink then you can ask a physician for a more powerful uh, pain relieving rinse or a a topical medication um, that has to be prescribed. also, uh, let me touch base a tiny bit on, on fatigue. So uh, tiredness is uh, probably I may say the most universe, universal side effect of of uh, chemotherapy. And, and chemo-induced fatigue tends to be cyclic. So you're likely to feel the most tired on the days right after treatment and then the fatigue tends to decrease until the next treatment. So as counterintuitive, as it may sound. One of the best ways to feel less uh, fatigued or, or drained while undergoing treatment is to exercise. And it doesn't have to be like going to the gym, just taking a walk uh, can be extremely uh, helpful. Um, other ways to ease exhaustion include uh, taking short naps or, or rest breaks um, under under half an hour uh, during the day. Um, You can also stick to a regular sleep wake schedule, uh, eating a balanced diet that includes uh, protein, and uh, drinking eight to 10 glasses of uh, water if you uh, can. And again, this is a recommendation from the American Cancer uh, Society. To some other extent, fatigue can sometimes be a sign of uh, anemia, and I'm gonna go over that uh, in a few minutes. Uh, that's basically having too few red uh, blood cells to carry oxygen to the body. Uh, that can be uh, a side effect from uh, from chemotherapy. Um, moving on, we have uh, alopecia. Uh, so some uh, chemo drugs kill off uh, cells uh, in the hair follicles, and that causes your hair to to thin or, or in some cases, to fall out completely. So if the chemotherapy the patient is taking includes medications or drugs that might cause hair loss, uh, you may consider using a cooling cup. Um, and the theory behind it is that uh, cooling uh, tightens up or, or uh, constricts those blood vessels in the scalp, reducing the amount of chemo drug that reaches the cells of the hair follicles. So that's uh, something to consider. Um, infections, that's, that's a big one. So um, infections, basically, we, we do recommend uh, hand uh, hygiene, you know, uh, soap and water. Uh, depending on the type of, of chemo regimen, um, there are some so-called prophylactic uh, antibiotics uh, and or antivirals that we prescribe to decrease the chances of those opportunistic infections to to create an issue. Uh, also, uh, depending on their circumstance and depending on the type of uh, regimen, uh, we may recommend something called a growth factor, which is a medication that um, boosts up the immune uh, system. Uh, so it uh, basically makes your white cells to recover Faster than uh, expected after the patient has been uh, receiving chemo, um, so that's as, as far as uh, infections. Uh, another big one is peripheral neuropathy, and that's the sensation of uh, you know uh, tingling on on hands and or feet. Um, but uh, also uh, we we can see peripheral neuropathy as kind of like a uh, difficulty of picking up odd objects or, or uh, buttoning uh, clothing, uh, issues with balance, uh, difficulty walking, uh, hearing loss. So these symptoms can build over time, and some people don't notice them until they have had several chemotherapy treatments. So um, we, uh, as physicians, we, we check on these type of symptoms every time the patient gets uh, uh, assessed for. Uh, for toxicity uh, happily you know nerve, nerve damage is, is temporary almost always and it will usually get better but it can take uh, it can take time so if you have uh, these symptoms of neuropathy please take extra caution when when handling uh, hot and sharp or or dangerous uh, objects uh, on your on your end you can, You can wear uh, warm, dry clothing in in cold weather. Uh, You can protect your hands and feet by uh, wearing uh, thick socks, uh, thick uh, mittens or or gloves, uh, taking intermittent breaks from the cold to reduce the exposure to uh, extreme uh, temperatures. Try to limit uh, the use of alcohol and or smoking, because uh, cigarette smoke can decrease uh, circulation. Um, trying to uh, incorporate exercise into uh, your routine um, to improve, you know, oral uh, circulation. Um, but if it gets again to a point that you know it, it cannot be handled with that, uh, then we as physicians can um, consider to decrease the dose of of the chemo drug or increase the length of the cycles or uh, also, uh, use medications to manage this specific uh, neuropathic pain. Um, photosensitivity is another one, uh, so it's basically uh, the fact that you may get this sunburn type of, type of uh, sensation really easy, um, and. You know, what we recommend is to uh, use uh, sunscreen at all times and try to use outfits to cover sun-exposed areas. Um, so those are, uh, I think, the, the big ones. Um, and then we have those uh, hematologic side effects. Uh, we uh, always check on on white cells, red cells, and, and platelets uh, when we do blood work. Um, but as far as those that we can um, mitigate, we are looking at um, low red cells, and that's called uh, anemia, or low platelets, and that's called uh, thrombocytopenia. And um, with that, there are uh, pretty specified thresholds uh, that we call critical if the uh, number falls below the threshold. Uh, and so we can contribute, you know, with, with blood transfusions if needed or, or platelets uh, transfusions as needed as well. Um, as far as pain, there are different medications uh, of uh, different uh, potency. Um, and so um, depending on the type of pain, depending on the intensity of pain, uh, your uh, medical oncologist or your hematologist would be able to advise on the best medication for that, and uh, most uh, important, to titrate that uh, medication. So that's that's what I have as far as uh, tips. Uh, and then I'm going to move on to guidelines to prepare for telemedicine, telemedicine appointments, uh, and that includes the uh, list of uh, questions and quality of life concerns. So, um, as far as uh, those telehealth or telemedicine appointments, uh, it's it's crucial to verify insurance coverage. You know, you you don't wanna you don't wanna be billed for a service that your insurance is, is not covered, regardless of whether you know you are under uh, Medicare or Medicaid or any kind of commercial insurance. Please make sure that 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 insurance uh, covers uh, your uh, provider's visit. Also try to uh, choose a, a good and private location to have that visit and have your device set up and ready. Whether that is a, a, a smartphone or a laptop or a desktop, uh, it, it's recommended to um, set it up well in advance. Get your information ready. So I'm talking about you know the, the list of prescriptions, the uh, information regarding pharmacy, information regarding primary care physician, uh, health insurance ID card, uh, medical history information, etc. And then try to write or think about questions to ask before the appointment. And those essential questions to ask include, uh, you know, questions like, like a, a what information does the physician have to make treatment recommendations, for instance? Or what are realistic goals for treatment? What are the chances that uh, a patient can be uh, cured? Um, what are chances of a long-term response with good quality of life? Um, are there any clinical trials available? Um, how will I feel during my treatment Or uh, whether, will I be able to work, take care of my family, and be around children? Um, also, it's important to ask about a, uh, managing side effects of treatment that I uh, described. Um, and then this is, this is important, you know, should I consider a second opinion regarding diagnosis and treatment? Um, and finally, are there different approaches to treating my kind of cancer? So those are uh, the ones that I would uh, uh, recommend to consider when discussing with um, with your provider. Finally, uh, speaking of uh, quality of life, um, it's important to say that back in the days we used to look at uh, any given chemo from two different angles, and those are the angles of safety and efficacy. But Nowadays, we recognize that there's a third angle and it's the angle of quality of life. So we need to assess that and we essentially assess that uh, covering uh, four functional states, which are physical, emotional, social, and cognitive uh, functioning. There are uh, five questions, five easy questions that uh, we ask to the patients and then we basically uh, score those questions, and uh, that gives us an idea of the quality of life when the patient is undergoing treatment. Those questions are, uh, one, do you have any trouble doing strenuous activities like carrying a heavy shopping bag or a suitcase? Two, do you have any trouble taking a long walk? Three, do you have any trouble taking a short walk outside the house? Four, do you need to stay in bed or a chair during the day? And five, do you need help eating, dressing, washing yourself, or using the toilet? And with that, that gives us a a good overview of of quality of life uh, in an effort to understand whether the treatment is not just, you know, safe but efficacious and at the same time provides a good quality. Life. And with that, I will conclude.
0: Thank you so much, Dr. Diaz. That was really outstanding and a stellar presentation, and also very wonderfully detail oriented about t- managing treatment side effects and also about the use of the telemedicine appointments and all the things to think about and prepare for. And um, so, really excellent presentation. I know there'll be questions for you during the A as well. Thank you. Thank you so much. And our next speaker is is Ms. Belita Cowan. Ms. Cowan is president, Lymphoma Foundation of America, and the Lymphoma Foundation of America and Ms. Cowan. They are a partner on today's program. And Ms. Cowan is going to be addressing the um, free programs of the Lymphoma Foundation of America and will provide you how to contact them by website, telephone number. And it's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Cowan.
4: Thank you. Lymphoma Foundation of America is delighted to partner with cancer care for this workshop. If you are a lymphoma patient, we provide free services and programs for you. For example, our foundation gives travel aid to help you with transportation. So please ask your social worker where you are treated to contact us on your behalf. We can also send you a list of many organizations that provide financial help for cancer patients, for hotel, insurance premiums, legal help, prescriptions, childcare, and for pediatric patients to grant them their wish. Lymphoma Foundation of America has nurse counselors you can speak with to answer your questions. Our goal is to help you understand your situation so you can make informed decisions about your health care. We welcome family members to contact us as well to learn how to help as a caregiver and as an advocate. Lymphoma Foundation of America gives grants and awards to researchers who are working on finding a cure for lymphoma, who are developing new treatments, and studying the environmental causes of lymphoma. Please visit our website, www.lymphomahelp.org, for help and information on second opinions, clinical trials, lymphoma diagnosis and staging, and, of course, inspirational stories from people who are sharing their journey to recovery. You may reach us by phone. Our number is 734-424-2000. And lastly, thank you, Cancer Care, for asking us to co-sponsor this workshop with you. It is very much appreciated and my pleasure to participate.
0: Thank you so much, Ms. Cowan. It's it's our honor and privilege to partner with you on this program today and on many of our programs um, involving lymphoma. So thank you so much. I'm just going to say a few words about Cancer Care Services. Um, uh, Cancer Care is a national organization, um, and many people contact us by calling our HOPE line, 800-813-4673, or visiting our website at www.cancercare.org. And by the way, we'll be sending you tomorrow a SurveyMonkey, which will include all the resources we mentioned today: websites, phone numbers, all those things so you, um, you'll have them. Um, also, um, we offer a host of services. I just want to give a quick thumbnail sketch, because we do want to move on um, to lots of other parts of this program before we conclude. So we do offer um, both practical. Financial and copayment assistance. We do offer support. Many people who call our Hopeline have a particular question. They speak to one of our 45 oncology social workers. who answer the phone, and they then will describe their need, and the social worker will address that, and also tell them all the other services we offer as well. Um, we also offer online support groups. Um, we also offer uh, telephone support groups, and we also offer um, a pet assistance program um, in which we help people who may have a dog or cat that they're not able to afford to walk or, or can't walk themselves and need help with we will help with that and we also or change the litter box um, and we also um, help um, we do have these workshops about 80 of them per year and we also do offer publications and now we're going to move on to the Q&A. I'm going to ask Rob to explain to you how to ask a question. I'm going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. Rob? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, at this time, we will take questions from the web only. You may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. So um, this question, uh, we have a question, lots of questions here. So I'm going to start with one question. Um, this question is for Dr. Diaz. What can you take to help anemia?
3: Well it's 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 kind of like hard to say what to take or what not to take. Uh and the simple reason is because chemo and uh chemoimmunotherapy or any of the uh other you know, newer molecules a uh have a toxicity profile that causes anemia and it's not like the patient is lacking iron or any of the uh vitamins that you commonly prescribed for that uh, it's 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 just a side effect you know um, and and unless the, the treatment is uh, withdrawn, we are gonna see anemia one way or the other. Uh, the issue is whether it becomes critical to you know hold the treatment and or institute or one of one of those uh, interventions to um, to correct the anemia with, with blood transfusions. But in general, what I, what I tell patients is just to uh, keep a well-balanced uh, nutrition, and that includes, you know, over-the-counter multivitamins just to cover all bases. And then I'll, I'll keep on checking on on blood work and then decide whether a blood transfusion would be indicated at some point in the trajector- within the trajectory of, of the treatment.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much. And the question for Dr. Diefenbach. What if a patient progresses during treatment, is refractory to treatment, or relapses at some time period after achieving a complete remission? What are their options for treatment?
2: So this scenario happens quite often, and this is one of the reasons that we have all these clinical trials to develop new drugs. So a lot of this depends on if you relapse during treatment or um, after treatment, and then if you relapse after treatment, how long after treatment. So some lymphomas, like diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, we think of as lymphomas that we try to cure with first-line therapy. So if you relapse either during treatment or after treatment, we try again with curative intent chemotherapy that can be quite intense, like a CAR T-cell or a transplant. If you have a lazier lymphoma, like a follicular or a marginal zone lymphoma, these are lymphomas that more often do relapse. So, in a way, we expect them to eventually relapse, but we don't always need to treat them unless they reach a certain threshold level of tumor burden where we think that it's important to treat it so that you won't have symptoms. And so, for a patient with follicular lymphoma or indolent lymphoma, um, the question is not so much are they going to relapse, but how long is it going to be? So, some patients relapse within two years, and some patients may relapse after 15 years. And you can imagine that the treatment plan is going to be different if you have a one-year relapse or a 10-year relapse. But in all the circumstances when patients relapse, um, you should ask your doctor if, if there are any good clinical trials that are appropriate to your situation, as well as what all the different standard therapy approaches are. And I think you'll see that for almost all lymphomas that relapse, there is more than one treatment option.
0: Thank you. And a question for Dr. Rutherford. What is germinal and non-germinal cancer when referring to DLBCL?
1: That is a great question, and, and we could really spend hours talking about this diagnosis, <laughs> so, um, but I, I'll do my best to give you a, a succinct answer to that. So um, there, there are two molecular subtypes of diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, and this was identified about 20 years ago. Um, one is called germinal center, and the other is called you may hear it called activated B-cell type or non-germinal center is the other type. At this point, um, both of those um, subtypes are treated similarly with the RCHOP um, regimen that I mentioned. Um, one um, piece of information to kind of go along further is that there is a, a category of um, diffuse large B-cell lymphoma that's called double-hit lymphoma that's characterized by two chromosome translocations, two changes in chromosomes. And that tends to be more common in the germinal center type. However, it's very uh, a low percentage, like 5% of overall of diffuse O2B cell lymphoma. Um, but that, um, that those types of testings will be done by your oncologist at baseline. Um, but at this point, most patients are still treated with RCHOP. <laughs> I apologize that I'm sick and I'm gonna stop <laughs> talking right now. Do you want to
0: continue Dr. Diesenbach, with that?
2: I think Dr. Rutherford did a great job explaining what is a very complicated, you know, uh, okay. uh, uh, histologic question in a very short amount of time. So. Okay, excellent. Okay,
0: well, I um, actually want to thank our speakers. You've all done a great job, and um, and our participants have asked such really great questions. So I want to thank you all very much. And um, we do have just a question for Miss Cowan about programs for caregivers. If you have any programs at your organization for caregivers?
4: Oh, thank you for the question. Very important. I would suggest that the family member um, call the Lymphoma Foundation of America directly, and we can put you in touch with one of our nurse counselors, and they can go over the many ways and steps that you can be helpful to your loved one as a caregiver, We also have suggestions for friends of patients with cancer. It's a do's and don'ts uh, list, and we surveyed 100 lymphoma patients to find out what was helpful and what was not helpful in terms of what to say and what to do for your friend with cancer. To sum up, I would suggest that the family member call us and uh, we can explore your situation and make suggestions to you.
0: Excellent. So I guess I also can suggest that you contact, uh, we do have a caregiving program at Cancer Care, and you can contact us at one 800 813 and speak with our oncology social workers. So between the two organizations, you definitely will have a huge amount of support as a caregiver, as a friend. Um, and that's why we partner, because, just so much. But the Lymphoma Foundation of America really specializes in lymphoma, and so they're a great place to start with. There's no question about that. And now I do want to, um, again, thank our participants. And I do want to, though, move on because I know there are some questions still in queue that we haven't gotten to, and I just want to comment on those. For those of you who asked a question. For those of you who have a question that you were hoping to ask and are still in queue, or for those of you who have a question that you're thinking about, all of you take it back to your treating healthcare team. Because remember, your healthcare team knows you the best. They know all about you. They know all about your particular needs. And they actually are able to address your questions. And you also will ask your questions differently because you've learned something today that you can take back to your treating healthcare teams. And that's really important as well um, in terms of how you ask your questions. Also, as we conclude the program today, we would not want any one of you to feel alone. We want you to know that you're part of the community of support. And, of course, in this particular program, you have the Lymphoma Foundation of America to call and cancer care, and please take advantage of those resources. And, again, I want to wish you all a very fine day, and I want to thank you all for your participation today. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.